So it's been about three years since I was last here. Um, I used to live here. I lived here for about 11 years from 2007 to 2018. And uh, because of the pandemic, my travels as with most of us were sort of curtailed and uh, the plans didn't come together. So this is the first trip back since um, October 2019. Since then, I spent about six months in Thailand looking after a monastery for a friend of mine, Ajahn Achalor. And then I went to uh, Temple Forest Monastery in New Hampshire, uh, North America, or USA. And I've been there ever since. So I went there to take up the duty of co-abbot with Ajahn Jayanto and... Uh, this was an in interesting experiment for me. Um, not always pleasant, but uh, definitely interesting. My natural tendency is to be an introvert. I'd rather not be in the public eye. So um, moving from someone who is sort of is in the background to someone who's more in the foreground as... as has probably been the biggest struggle of all. It's just getting used to feeling uncomfortable, basically. Um, but the situation there is, is ideal in many respects. It's a very large property. It's a beautiful forest. New Hampshire itself is 84% forest, which is, you know, New Hampshire is about the size of a small country, like Belgium or Wales, and 84% of it is covered in forest. Um, so the, the land, the monastery land, also uh, runs into other forest land. It also is uh, attached to a, a wildlife refuge. So it's, it's full of wildlife uh, as a refuge points out and uh, so we have lots of visits from bears and moose and uh, all sorts of interesting creatures. Of course all forest monasteries within our tradition have more similarities than differences. So the, the form is very much the same. Um, the robes we wear, the style is, is very similar. But also each monastery has its own flavor, its own feel. Um, Amravati has always struck me as being a very warm and friendly place, very welcoming, and uh, lots of people, lots of activity. Whereas this monastery, um, Temple Forest Monasteries, it's more leaning towards seclusion, so a very big space, kutis spread out in the forest, lots of uh, space between each other. Although there is, once again, a a structure to the day, of course. But it seems like both Ajahn Jayanto and I are, are minimalists. 
at least in terms of the form, so it it, uh, it tends to reflect that. We've been very fortunate to have Lompo Samedo there for the Vasa, and he's always been a great inspiration to me uh, over the last 20 plus years. And uh, I lived here with him in the early 90s. And uh, at that stage, I didn't really understand what he was going on about, I must admit. It was, uh, I'd been living uh, quite a full lay life, very active, lots of sensuality, uh, running a small business. But I got into meditation, but it wasn't really through the Buddhist uh, porthole. It, it was a New Age style. So I'd been meditating for a couple of years, and I, I was really, you know, enjoying the, the results. It was becoming more interesting and attractive than anything else in my life. So I was searching in a way, I was searching for some thing that was more concrete or had a stronger foundation than the New Age um, styles that I was following. And I had a gentleman, he pointed me in this direction, and that was 1994, and I went on a retreat just after the winter retreat here, and um, Ajahn Amaro was the teacher of that retreat. So Ajahn Amaro was the first monk I met at that time. But the retreat was horrendous. Not because of the teaching, but because of what I was experiencing. So, although I'd been meditating, I'd never sat still um, for more than probably half an hour. And I'd never been quiet, you know, for more than a few hours, so it, it was uh, quite an experience not to talk for 10 days. So I don't recommend it if you haven't meditated before, just to jump into a 10-day retreat, it's probably a bit much. But back then it, was, it seemed to be okay for us to be doing that. But anyway, it just brought up so many strong emotions, lots of fears, lots of anger, confusion, but the teachings that I did connect with, like the Four Noble Truths and the, the Law of Kama, really struck very deeply into my heart. And I realized at the end of the retreat, it, it, had, it really had been horrendous for 10 days. I hadn't slept, I just, um, the emotions were just bubbling over all the time. And I didn't know what to do with them. I hadn't really built up any skills in my previous meditation practice. But I knew I had to do something about it. I just couldn't carry on as I was. You know, there had to be, um, there had to be a way forward. And I, I did trust meditation, although the skills weren't there. And with these teachings that I'd um, imbibed while on the retreat, had really struck home, so it felt to me like I had to do something. I couldn't just return to a, a life pursuing sensuality and, and ignoring, you know, 
the internal experience I was having, but ignoring the teachings that I felt to be true at that time. So I made a decision on the Sunday. So not only was I engaged, or not only not only was I engaged in running a business, I was also engaged to get married at that time. And she was a very beautiful, wonderful person. And but I had this strong spiritual uh, aspiration, and I just couldn't seem not to follow it, so I had to follow it. So I went home, I closed the business and broke off the relationship, and by the Friday I was back in the monastery. So it's five days. So you can understand having nothing to do with Buddhism and then suddenly being thrust into it full time, why I didn't quite get Lompol Sumato's teachings initially. He was very impressive, and many of the monks were very impressive at that time. Some of them weren't so impressive, I must say. But I had this faith, incredibly strong faith, just from you know that, that deep resonance with the Four Noble Truths. You know, I, I reflected on my life, and I see that, saw that basically. I'd created all this suffering for myself. Part of the confusion that had come about before meeting Buddhism was around suffering so much and not knowing why. Why am I like this? Why am I suffering so much? And then seeing the Four Noble Truths and having a level of understanding, it just basically pointed at the fact I was creating it all. It was all done by my mental activity and, and physical activity, how I was living my life, basically. So coming to the monastery, um, like I said, I was, I was um, pursuing the five cords of sensual pleasure as vigorously as I could at that time, with great gusto. And then I came to the monastery, and obviously there wasn't much happening on that level. It was just food. <laughs> so most of us who've come into the monastery will understand about the, you know, the how desire that isn't fulfilled in any other way gets focused on the one thing that you can have. So, as an Anagarika, I remember spending time at Chithurst, and um, I used to be in charge of the kitchen, and they'd uh, we'd leave all the food out afterwards, of course. We'd collect our food and go and eat it. And I'd eat it as quickly as possible, run into the kitchen, grab a tray of cakes and take them into the larder, and have what was commonly known at that time as a cake frenzy. <laughs> And a couple of other Anagarikas would join me. Fortunately, those tendencies wore off over time. And, uh, yeah, I, I settled in to monastic life. I mean, the first five years or so were absolutely awful. 
And the second five years were a bit better. And uh, after about 12 years, there was a bit of a shift. So it, it took me a while. Some people move faster than others. So don't think just because it took me so much time. Um, it's going to be the case for you. I mean, I do know a lot who are sort of transformed very quickly. But it's just my karma. It was my path. And, you know, it was a great struggle. But f for some reason, I just kept going. So after 12 years, I, I sort of realized what Lumpur Samadha was going on about, at least to a little bit. And I'd, I'd, like I said, I'd lived a very active life as a lay person. I had, before running the, the business, I'd been a, a soldier in the British Army. And one thing they teach you in the Army is to never give up. So I had this very, very strong willpower just to keep going. But the trouble was when, when you're trying really hard and you're doing it wrong, it hurts. So it took me quite a while to stop doing that, you know, 12 years to be precise. So basically that's what I did. I just stopped, stopped trying to get somewhere instead of focusing on the breath or a meditation object or whatever it was, I just stopped where I was. So paying attention to what was happening instead of trying to get somewhere else. And even though I knew that before, I just couldn't do it. My The tendency was so strong to, to achieve, to attain to become. I couldn't stop it. So since then I've really uh, appreciated Lompo Samedo and Ajahn Amaru, their teaching has helped me so much. And uh, just refining this understanding over quite some time now. So having Lompo Samedo with us in temple has been a great blessing. He's not been doing much, and we wouldn't expect him to be at his age. Um, but he's been coming out, he's offered to come out once a week and give us guidance. He gives a teaching to the monks and the, the lay community. Um, our situation there is very simple still. We've, we've spent a lot of time and energy building kutis in the forest. And we did have quite a lot of buildings already. It was a combination of about six properties altogether, this land that we acquired. And some of them are just little sort of run-down cottages, but some of them were quite extensive, like a big barn, and um, there was a, a, a small factory, if you like, in one place. So we renovated these to become accommodation, and workshop and a little sala as well. So normally we just about get by with the size of the amount of uh, people that come. But since Lompoc came, that changed. So um, we, when he gives talks, people have to just sit in the kitchen, in the lay eating area. So we had to run an extra 
um, extra speaker out into the kitchen for everybody. And this particular building that I'm talking about is very, very old, at least for America. So it's 1772 and made out of wood. So we started to worry about the, the weight on the floor because there's a cellar underneath and it's a bit rickety. But fortunately it's held up so far. But anyway, his teaching to me, you know, nowadays is just always pointing at the Four Noble Truths and awareness itself. So this is what really appealed to me, what really woke me up after these 12 years was understanding a bit more about awareness and what it really is. So, so much, so many of us, when we start, we, we do mindfulness. It's like something we're practicing. And when we're not practicing, we're not doing it. It's not there. But, you know, awareness is always there. We can't lose it. We, we can't get rid of it. Nobody can take it from us. It can't be damaged or stained in any way. You know, as Paul says, it's perfectly pure. And it's where it's our real home. So I started looking at it like this: as awareness is is the background, if you like. Everything that's happening within awareness is the foreground, and that well, none of those things are really us, like our bodies, our thoughts, our emotions, sensations, sights, sounds, smells, tastes. Whatever it is, these things are just arising and passing away. They're not really what we are. But if we're not practicing and we're not aware, then we just lose ourselves in the objects. It's very easy done because they are so attractive, they draw our attention to them. You know, if we haven't been meditating, very rarely have we any idea what awareness is. It's in its true nature, its true form. So, like Long Paul said, uh, awareness is our, our, our real home. Basically, because basically we can't get out of it and we can't get rid of it. If we're always trying to get rid of the things that we have in awareness, or always trying to make them better or get better things in the future, then that just creates creates tension and stress, and we suffer. And this is something we have to have to understand and see for ourselves. You know, the four noble truths are pointing at this particular. Um, situation very clearly but we're, we're educated or conditioned in a different way you know we are conditioned to achieve attain become we are conditioned to believe that time is real so we have to see through this conditioning by looking at reality observing what's happening within us not necessarily contemplating, we can, we can contemplate, that can be helpful, but observation of our own particular 
karmic makeup. What happens when we cling? What happens when we resist something we don't like? At least in my experience, I suffer. So with this awareness, just stopping where you are and watching what's happening, starting from where you are, instead of starting from where you want to be. So time is very important, understanding time and timelessness. Like we can't get out of the present. So that also means we can't get into the past or future. So just try and get out of the present right now. It's impossible. Because <coughs> it's all there is, the present. The present reality. So what's really happening is the present just stays exactly where it is and everything else moves through it. So thoughts, emotions, sensations, they're all coming into consciousness, coming into awareness and then passing out of it. And this includes days and nights. This includes time itself. We stay exactly where we are, awareness stays exactly where it is. And then time through moves through the present. The present doesn't move or jog along with time. It doesn't go anywhere. You know, time is a human creation. It's not actually real. But if we have a belief in it, we believe days and nights are real. We believe the 24-hour clock is real. We can start getting some perspective on that by observing that actually days and nights pass through the present. You know, in terms of the 24-hour clock, this is very, very obviously a human creation. You know, it could have been anything, absolutely anything. It could have been metric time. You know, if we if we divided the um, day up into 10 hours, all we would have to do is shorten the second just slightly and then we could have a hundred seconds in a minute, a hundred minutes in an hour, and ten hours in a day. It's not, it's not difficult to do. It's very obviously a human creation. But then when you look at the spinning planet, and you look at the uh, uh, planet orbiting the Earth, that's obviously, or very obviously, nature doing its thing. But if you just imagine that you're zooming out of the planet and now you're in space and you're looking back at that planet and you see Amravati Buddhist Monastery coming into the daylight and then disappearing into the darkness, coming up into the daylight again and disappearing into the darkness. Because you're not on the planet, you're no longer disappearing into the darkness with the planet. You're no longer subject to nights and days. You're no longer subject to a 24-hour clock. And if you turn around and you look at the sun, you no longer have 
you know, and if you haven't got a watch on, of course, if you if you're looking at the sun, you no longer have a way of measuring time. So you're out in space looking at the, the sun. How do you measure time? You need a regularly repeating pattern, not just to measure time, but to create time. So all the planets rotate on their axis at different speeds, and all of them orbit the sun. It, it takes them different times to orbit the sun. So all of them have different times. So which one is right? Is it Earth or Saturn or Mercury? One thing they do have is a regular, regularly repeating pattern. So time is an illusion, it's not really real. So if you come back to this planet, and you imagine that you have a friend in the very east coast of Russia, which is about 12 hours in front of us, and a friend in the very west coast of Alaska. Now if you called your friend up in the very east coast of Alaska, east coast of Russia, and they picked up the phone and said hello, are they really 12 hours in front? They can't be 12 hours in front if they can speak to you on the phone. You wouldn't be able to speak to them if they were 12 hours in front. The same goes for the west coast of Alaska. We're all in the present reality. We're all experiencing now because that's all there is. So once you start to understand timelessness, then you start to let go of this effort to get somewhere. And you realize it's not about getting somewhere else, it's about being where we are. You know, now is our home. So making it a, a good place to be. So in a way, it's like there's a tornado and it's spinning around. And when we're suffering, we're caught up with the debris that's spinning around outside of the tornado or the hurricane. And when we let go, we let go into the center of the hurricane, which is peaceful. It's not as though we're going somewhere else. We're no longer getting caught up with the things that distract us or disturb us. We don't have to go anywhere or get anything. We just have to let go. So ultimately speaking, your meditation never improves or declines. It's just a matter of letting go of all, all the distractions, all the suffering, all the confusion, and being what and where you really are. So awareness is this refuge that we keep get, getting told about, it keeps getting pointed at. And it's the most obvious thing there is. You know, it's right under our noses all the time. So if, if you're looking for it, you've, you've already missed it, because it's doing the looking. 
So one of the most helpful things that I find is to ask myself, am I awake? And, it, you know, you don't want an answer that's verbal or in thought. You just want to see, are you awake? And that's it. It's right, being aware of being awake, if you like. You're right there in the present. You don't have to go any further. It's the simplest thing in the world. But we have become very complicated. We overthink everything. We try to make it more interesting or exciting than it really is. Surely it can't be that simple. But the truth is, it is that simple, but we have complicated everything. So, Lomposamedo, he teaches about trusting a lot, which I really like, because when the mind is agitated and you come into the present, it doesn't feel very comfortable. And you think, surely this can't be it. You know, there's dukkha here. You know, the end of suffering is, is a promise that Buddhism gives us. So surely it's somewhere else then. The truth lies somewhere else. If I'm still suffering, the truth obviously lies in the future. But it doesn't. It's right here, right now. We can't get out of the present, so we have to make it a comfortable place to be. So you want to be there. So trusting, using this suggestion, in a way it's like encouraging us to relax in the present. The only, only reason we're suffering is because we're tense. And that tension comes from wanting something else. So if we start to trust this awareness, that tension will start to slowly, gradually dissolve. You know, it does take patience. It doesn't happen on a whim. So I use this word a lot as a suggestion, as encouragement. But, you know, it may not work for everybody. Maybe you need a, a combination of things that encourage that. So it's a softening, it's a, a gentling, it's a lightening. It's an encouragement to stop and be with what is and just trust that the Buddha's teachings are true, that all of these things that are in the present that may be affecting you in a negative way, if you leave them alone, in time they will just fade away and pass. So this is really what we are, this awareness. Not as an ego, you know. The ego is something we create. We can create an ego around awareness if we want to. We can do it around anything. You know, the body's not self. You know, our thoughts and feelings are not self. We know this already. And awareness is not self also. But that doesn't mean 
you know, if something is not self, it doesn't exist. It still exists. And in a way, it's the only thing that exists because it's the only thing that lasts. Everything else will dissolve and pass away. The body, our emotions, thoughts, whatever, our sense of self, it all goes. But awareness remains. So it's not a case of resting or relaxing into awareness. It's a relaxing as awareness. Because it's what we really are. So simple, but so confusing as well, on some level. But once you start to get the knack of it, you know, like I said, it was 12 years before I, I started to sort of, ah, the light goes on. You know, you get this light bulb moment or the penny drops. And then you start to get a feel for it. And then you follow your, intu- your intuition you start to feel it out. How does this really work? Instead of all our misperceptions that we've created through reading the suttas, through um, misinterpreting the teachings we've had, we start to get a feel for what it really is. Because if we're deluded, it's inevitable we're not going to understand um, correctly the teachings we receive. It's a natural misunderstanding. Because we, we're trying to understand from a place of uh, worldly conditioning, which is the total opposite of Dhamma. So this path, it takes a huge amount of patience, a huge amount of courage to keep going, even when you feel as though it's not working. And the courage to investigate, you know, emotions you don't like, to be be there with them, and stop trying to get rid of them, opening up to them, opening the heart. This is where the difficult difficulty comes in, turning into the dukkha instead of running away from it. Now, if we keep running, we'll never see the truth. We have to stop where we are and, and accept, okay, there's a certain amount of karmic, vipaka karma, the results of karma that we have to bear with. You know, if we've, if, if we've suppressed our emotions, then inevitably we have to start being with them to understand them. So it's been a great joy to meet some old friends and uh, come back here again for a visit. And I'd like to invite anybody here who's uh, passing through New Hampshire to come up. And the snow in the winter is fantastic. You know, it's like two months of a foot or two feet, minus 20 Celsius at least. I'm sure you'll enjoy that. But the snow makes it really quiet. So there are benefits. So I'd like to finish there.